Welcome to Food Psych, a weekly podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 118 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I have a very special guest on the podcast, one of the only three-time guests that we've ever had on this show, Isabel Fox and Duke is back. She's an emotional eating expert who helps women stop fighting food, and she's been on the podcast a couple times before to talk about her story in episode 36, and then to talk about emotional eating in episode 74. So if you haven't heard those episodes yet, definitely check them out, and then listen to today's for an even deeper dive into all the concepts that we touched on in those other episodes. So we talk about emotional eating. We talk about why it needs to stop being demonized. We talk about privilege and weight bias and control and how to handle triggers as a recovered person. And also we get into healthism and that's a super important topic. So definitely stay tuned. We have such a rich, beautiful discussion coming up and I can't wait for you to hear it. And before we get into it, I want to let you know that I have become an affiliate for Isabel's program, Stop Fighting Food because I love it so much, because I believe in her mission and philosophy, and we're just so aligned in how we think about food and body image. And there are very few people who I really trust so much when it comes to talking about these issues. And Isabel has been a fan favorite for a long time, so I know that some of you out there would love to join her program. So if you want to find out more about it, you can do it through my affiliate link, which is christyharrison.com slash IFD. That's for Isabel Fox and Duke. Christy Harrison com slash IFD. That will take you to the Stop Fighting Food page on her website, and you can learn more about her program there, and it'll let her know that I sent you, so you'll help out the podcast. You'll support me, support my work in the podcast if you end up signing up for her program. So again, that link is christyharrison.com slash IFD. Be sure to check it out, and I can't wait to share our episode with you. First, I'm going to answer the listener question from this week. So this is from a listener with initials MD who writes, Hi, I love the podcast first off. It's so helpful and inspiring to hear so many people's stories and have such great examples of people advocating for the body positive and health at every size movement. I was recently diagnosed with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and I've been really struggling with bad digestion problems. I found that when I try to eat certain foods and foods I considered quote-unquote healthier, that I have less digestion problems and I do feel better most of the time. But I did have an eating disorder, and so I'm worried about getting into an orthorexic mindset or getting into bad diet behaviors by eating a certain way because it helps my digestion. Do you have any recommendations on how I go about this? I don't want to have to deal with the troubles of IBS that really disrupted my day-to-day life, but I also don't want to get into negative eating behaviors. Thank you so much for the podcast. Well, thank you so much, MD. And before I answer your question, which is a great one, I will just say my quick standard disclaimer that these answers are not meant as individual medical advice. They're for informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Okay, so this is a great question and it has a few different layers to it. The first layer I want to address is this idea that when you try to eat certain foods that you quote unquote considered healthier, that you have fewer digestion problems and feel better most of the time, you say. So I just want to unpack that a little bit because 
when we have ideas about food, right, when we think of food as good and bad in our minds and we hang on to that diet mentality to some extent, the foods that we are feeling good about, we probably have less stress when we eat them, right? And the foods that we feel bad about or scared of, we have more stress when eating them, more anxiety. They bring up more bad feelings in us, right? That is true. And it is also true that when you feel anxious and stressed, your, your digestion suffers, right? Your digestion is not as effective. It doesn't go as smoothly, right? Digestion is really linked to emotions and being in fight or flight mode, which is what anxiety is, right? Anxiety and stress is actually in opposition to the rest and digest mode where your brain is relaxed, your body is relaxed, you're able to rest and digest, right? And so when fight or flight is activated, that turns off your ability to digest as well because you're your body really thinks it needs to like run and get away from a predator or fight a predator or fight a rival or something. Or there's also freeze, fight, flight, freeze, right? Sometimes you just get frozen and can't do anything because of the adrenaline that's happening, right? And sometimes that's adaptive. So if you're in this mode, if you're feeling anxious and nervous and scared about the foods that you're eating and you're in a fight or flight type of place, odds are it's going to affect your digestion negatively. And conversely, if you're feeling good, if you're feeling relaxed, if you're feeling pretty chill, and it's because you're eating foods that you consider okay, safe, happy foods or whatever, it's more likely to help your digestion function normally, function smoothly, not have all the issues that you would when you're in that anxious place. So with IBS, I think it's really important to sort of highlight that and make that distinction because it's possible that what's going on for you is that your IBS is being triggered by stress and anxiety, and that stress and anxiety could be exacerbated or brought on completely by specific foods, and therefore you might feel worse when you eat those foods, but it doesn't actually have to do with how the foods are affecting your stomach or your intestines, but rather how those foods are making you feel and how that stress is affecting your stomach and your intestines. Does that make sense? So see how that resonates with you. See if that potentially speaks to your experience. And if you can do anything to continue breaking down the good-bad dichotomy with food, it might be really helpful. It might be helpful to challenge yourself to try to eat the foods that you consider quote-unquote worse for your IBS and try to do it in a neutral, relaxed way where you really let yourself feel like there is no good and bad food. This food is not going to hurt me. This food is actually pleasurable and helpful and makes me feel good and sort of get yourself in a mindset where you believe that it's going to be okay and test it. And then also try to take away the halo over those foods that you consider quote unquote good and see how that affects things. So really working to unpack your lingering diet mentality, your lingering hierarchy of good and bad foods, and help yourself feel more neutral about food and then see how that affects your digestion. And then the other thing is, since you're recovering from an eating disorder, I don't know how recently you've had this eating disorder or what your history is, but for a lot of people who are recovering from eating disorders, IBS or digestive troubles are a real thing. Eating disorders often cause a lot of digestive disturbances because obviously it's affecting the digestive system to use eating disorder behaviors, right? It's it's not something that your body is designed to do or handle. The eating disorder behaviors 
that people use really interfere with the normal functioning of the digestive system. So it's very normal, very common for people in recovery from eating disorders to have digestive disturbances, sometimes long after the behaviors have subsided. And so if it's been six months or a year or so since you've recovered or stopped using behaviors, rather, and you're still having IBS symptoms, I would find a gastroenterologist who really understands eating disorders and who's willing to work with you on non elimination diet related tools for IBS management. But, you know, see if you can find someone in your area, reach out to your local eating disorder organization, or if you're working with a therapist in your area, see if they can recommend a gastroenterologist who has training and expertise in eating disorders, or that your therapist can at least work with and talk about your case with them and sort of highlight some of the dangers that might come from, say, recommending an elimination diet or doing anything restrictive for the management of your IBS. Because unfortunately, many gastroenterologists these days will jump to recommending a really restrictive diet for IBS. And A, it's not clear that that's necessary or effective. And B, it's very contraindicated in anyone recovering from an eating disorder, right? Because restriction is the last thing you need if you're recovering from an eating disorder. That's just going to exacerbate the eating disorder mentality. So really try to find a gastroenterologist who gets it, who, I mean, this might be a unicorn depending on where you live, but if you can find someone who gets eating disorders, is a gastroenterologist, and gets health at every size and intuitive eating, you've hit the jackpot because that's a person who you can really trust with figuring out the best way for you to manage your IBS without triggering you back to the old mentality and behaviors. And there are methods of managing IBS that don't involve restriction or taking out foods, but that have more to do with stress management and supporting overall intestinal function without thinking about food, right? There's a lot else that goes into digestive health other than just what you eat. It's also how you eat, how you feel about what you eat, like we talked about earlier. And then practical tips on things like timing your meals at a certain amount of time before bedtime, for example, or helping improve the motility, the transit time of your intestines with medications or supplements, et cetera, right? So there's things you can do that don't involve changing your eating, is my point. So to recap, I would say really work on your relationship with food and breaking down the diet mentality that might be lingering and causing stress around particular types of foods and making you feel less stressed out around the foods you deem quote-unquote good and see if that helps lessen the sort of dichotomy between the quote healthier foods that make your IBS feel better and the quote-unquote bad foods or whatever you're you're sort of holding on to whatever negativity you're holding on to about those foods that might be making you more stressed out when you eat them and work with a gastroenterologist who understands eating disorders and who can help you find ways of managing your IBS that don't involve restricting food or changing what you eat. So I hope that helps. And for those of you listening who want to ask a question of your own, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions to ask your own question now. 
If you want some more tips from me and practical guidance on intuitive eating, you can grab my free guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food, which is an audio guide, like a mini podcast episode about the seven strategies that I recommend as really my top tips for starting to make peace with food and heal your relationship with food and your body. So you can get it by going to christyharrison.com slash strategies. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. Or you can text the word seven strategies. That's all one word, the number seven and the word strategies, seven strategies to the phone number 44222. If you want an even deeper dive into the principles of intuitive eating and health at every size, join my intuitive eating online course, which you can find at christyharrison.com slash course. You've heard me mention it on the podcast before, but it's a 13-week online course to help you make peace with food and your body. And it really gets into all the principles of intuitive eating in depth and helps you troubleshoot the common areas where people get stuck when they try to do intuitive eating on their own. So there's 13 modules of content walking you through the principles of intuitive eating and troubleshooting and figuring out common pitfalls. And then I also do a really deep dive in the monthly Q&A podcast for the course, which is exclusively for course participants. And it's like over an hour, usually about an hour and a half of content every month, exclusive content. You're not going to find it anywhere else where I answer questions from participants in the course. So that could be you. And you get access to a library of hundreds of questions that I've answered before from previous participants. So you can listen to all of those and ask your own questions of me going forward. And you get lifetime access to the course and all the material, which means you can revisit it again and again as often as you like, forever if you like, and really help yourself cement the principles of intuitive eating and bring them into practice in your own life. So learn more about the course and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. All right, without any further ado, let's go talk to Isabel Fox and Duke. This was an in-person interview, which I recorded at my dining table in Brooklyn. So it's so great to catch up with you since we last spoke. Our last episode about emotional eating has been a fan favorite. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. It is, again, I think I mentioned my passion project is debunking all of the mythery around emotional eating. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so needed in the world, you know? <laughs> yeah. Mythology? Mythery? mythery? I can't believe I just made that up. <laughs> I literally just word. went for it. You did. Yeah. Mythology. Brilliant. Yeah. I kind of like mythery. Maybe I'll continue <laughs> using that. Yeah. Yes. It's perfect. Yeah. So, and I think it's, you know, that episode got into some really good stuff around the fact that emotional eating doesn't really come from nowhere, right? It comes from restriction. I think that was the big take-home message there. Yeah. And it's, I mean, fundamentally, it's a construction of diet culture in the sense that emotional eating, to some extent, we villainize pretty much for the purpose of being able to fit ourselves into diet culture, right? Like if diet culture didn't exist, if food was like a real free liberating thing and it just didn't really matter what you ate, no one was judging you or shaming you around what you were eating. Or your body size. Or your body size. No one would really give a crap about emotional no. eating, quite frankly, right? And it's <laughs> interesting. I think I probably mentioned this on this episode, but you know, I have never read any piece of literature that even uses that term before around the 1960s mm-hmm. or really, really honestly, probably in the 70s even. Right. I don't think I've ever read anything in literature that even uses that term or even the term compulsive eating for that matter. I mean, none of this really exists in a pre-diet world. We only problematize the idea of eating food for comfort in a world in which eating, quote unquote, too much is wrong, right? And so that's, this has kind of become a a big, yeah, a huge topic of interest for me is sort of kind of really taking a hard look at how we talk about emotional eating and sort of how that 
really plays into a lot of very, very restrictive diet culture, diet mentality ideas. I think it's so important because I think that's the entry point for so many people in dealing with their, you know, issues with food, right? Is like, oh, I'm an emotional eater. They self-describe. Totally. And then seek out resources to, you know, that address that, but it, it's seeking out resources that label it as such. The resources you're going to find that label it as such are usually going to be very problematic, right? Almost always. I mm-hmm. think we even mentioned this on the last show, but it's sort of like I kind of use, I use the term, emo- I've, I've tried to reclaim the term emotional eating because it's almost like I want people to understand that I get where they're coming from. I understand the concept. I've been there. I still do that sometimes, right? Like the the, the concept of eating something for the purpose of comfort or, you know, wanting to grab something when I feel like a little off or whatever, or just give myself a little something. That is, you know, I, I want people to know that I really understand this experience. I don't want to deny the actual fundamental experience. The question is, is A, why is this happening? Why do we turn to food for comfort at all, right? Like, why is that an interesting coping mechanism? And we do know that this is a coping mechanism that is pretty much directly correlated with dieting, with restriction, with restrained eating is the word that Linda Bacon actually uses in the book. So heavily correlated, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation. This is so heavily correlated that typically speaking, we don't actually really see people who don't have a history of food restraint turning to food for comfort. They actually often lose their appetite when they're stressed out or anxious. So it's like not just even correlations, like full inverse correlation, <laughs> like every which way, right? So we we really do know that emotional eating is something that is very heavily, is like pretty, like I think there's, there's an argument to be made for causality right. between emotional eating and diet and some sort of history of restrained eating, dieting, restriction, poor body image, even emotional deprivation, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I think B, the even more important point is why do we care whether or not we do eat emotionally. Like, let's just say for the sake of argument that I'm in recovery and I still sometimes feel like when I am stressed out or anxious, I want to turn to food because that's a coping mechanism that I've developed over the course of my life through my history of dieting, whatever. Not dieting anymore, pretty much recovered from, you know, diet culture and diet mentality to the best of most people's ability. And I don't really give a shit that sometimes I want to eat a brownie when I'm sad or whatever, you know, And, and, and it is interesting. Like, I just... I think that's even the more interesting, that's the more interesting conversation is why do we even care about this coping mechanism to begin with when in reality it is relatively benign, especially compared with coping mechanisms like restriction, which are incredibly dangerous, or coping mechanisms like obsessing about food, which are incredibly dangerous, or coping mechanisms like all of these other disordered eating behaviors that really are the thing that are most potentially threatening to our livelihood, happiness, et cetera. And yeah, when I, I mean, if I have clients that are experiencing that and they're like, oh my God, I overate. I ate, you know, a whole bunch of this snack food in front of the TV and it felt kind of like a binge. I'm not sure if it was a binge or just emotional eating. Like, I don't want to be an emotional eater. I don't want to be doing that again. And it's like, okay, well, why is that problem for you? What is what is problematic about that? You know, nine times out of 10, it goes back to, well, if I keep doing that, I'm going to gain weight. And right. if I gain weight, I'm going to hate myself. Right. You know, it's like That's it goes literally to this, the only reason anyone cares. Right. Like there is like a very, very, very minute possibility that you might bring up a health argument, which again, I could definitely assuage also like emotional eating like is not necessarily even unhealthy, like no. period, like it's just not. However, it's like another subject for another time. 
Again, 95% of the reasons that I hear that people give a shit about emotional eating are fat phobia, right. having nothing to do with health or nothing to do with any of these other arguments. Occasionally, I'll hear people say something to the effect of like, but I really want to feel my feelings. Isn't it like, you know, important for my health that I not, quote unquote, numb out? And, you know, realistically, you know, you're using coping mechanisms all the time and you don't feel badly about most of them except for the ones that you have some sort of like sort of kind of like moralistic or healthist issue with for the most part, right? Like every time you turn on TV, do you feel badly about the fact that you're numbing out? Every time that you go to social media, do you feel badly about the fact that you're numbing out? Why food? Why food? Yes. Like bring it on. Like I dare you to bring me something other than the fact that you're concerned about weight gain. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Because if it were really an issue of not wanting to numb out, okay, let's look at all the other ways that you're numbing out that are actually probably more harmful. Exactly. 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 No, we don't want to touch those. Which really just goes into this whole conversation about like, this is a rationalization. Like, let's just be fucking real. Yeah, totally. We're coming up with reasons why it's okay to restrict in this way. Right. Well, it was so interesting, too. We were talking off mic about this concept of emotional eating and how like well-meaning therapists and other professionals will talk about emotional eating in this way that vilifies it and transmit that idea to people. Right. Like, it's not just their idea. Right. For the most part, people learn about the concept of emotional eating from somewhere, from something. I remember the very first time, I mean, for most of my life that I was dieting up until the age of about probably 17, which was my whole life. I mean, I think I've sat on both of my previous interviews. I've been dieting since I was three. Mm -hmm. Um, Since the first time my like pediatrician, my fat phobic pediatrician put me on a diet. But pretty much that entire time, I didn't really ever, quote unquote, realize. And now, you know, the way I said, I was like, I didn't realize I was eating emotionally. That wasn't an idea that really came to me when I was dieting in my younger years. I just didn't understand why I couldn't, quote unquote, control myself around food. Like that much I understood. I understood that I was trying to be on a diet and I couldn't stick to it. And there must be something wrong with me. Like that narrative definitely emanated from like my, quote, truth. Like what the hell is going on that I can't stick to my diet? And as a result, I was constantly looking for answers to that question. And I remember I was about 17 when I came upon the book. The very first book I ever read that even mentioned the term, you know, emotional eating, compulsive eating was overcoming overeating, which again, like problematic parts of this book, obviously, that's why I'm bringing it up. But I remember like I definitely remember having this moment where I was like, Oh, that's it. I'm an emotional eater. Ah, <laughs> oh, right. And like, it was like, ah, oh, like now I just have to get over my emotional eating and everything will be fine and I'll be thin and right. unicorns and rainbows will pop out of the sky. Oh, thank, thank God. God somebody <laughs> has explained to me that I'm just an emotional eater, right? right. Oh my God, <laughs> right. totally. This never actually like really, I mean, it was something that it was an idea that was planted, you know, it was kind of planted in my head. And it made so much sense to me at the time because I was like, oh my God, they're right. Like, I do want food for comfort. I do want food when I'm stressed out and anxious and dealing, whatever. Again, no explanation of the very logical and rational reasons why a dieter might feel that way. <laughs> why somebody who has a restrictive history with food, who is like basically actively trying to starve themselves, 
might want, might find food comforting, right. might find food to be something that actually makes them feel better. Like yeah. crazy concept, right? And so it was just, it was just amazing to me that it was presented. I totally just bought, it was presented to me like, and it made complete sense. It resonated with my experience when I first heard it. But it was presented to me as the problem, the thing that was keeping me from effectively my weight goals, Mm -hmm. right? And in reality, I could make the argument that emotional eating was like keeping me alive. You know, I ditto binge eating. I mean, I talk about this frequently with binge eating. Like, I pretty much think that binge eating is like a healthy, natural reaction to deprivation. Like, if you're binge eating, your body is doing what it's supposed to do which is get food in the face of deprivation. Right. Period. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, people have all kinds of reasons. They tell themselves why, well, I'm eating enough, right? Right, right. right. And enough in this restrictive sense that they've just been told or told themselves, like, this should be enough. And so why isn't it? Why am I still binging? Right. That was so my experience, too, in my eating disorder. It was like the binge restrict cycle, and I was fully convinced – This diet that I'm sticking to rigidly throughout the day is enough food for me. And so why on earth am I eating all these forbidden things at night and like every single night, you know, hurting myself, right? right? And like, you know, if only I could get rid of that behavior, the restrictive eating would just fall into place and I'd be thin. Right. I mean, it's just like, exactly. Yeah. I feel like there was, you know, whether that whether the enough was something that was outside myself, like whether it was like, oh, well, I'm eating what the dietary pyramid guidelines tell me that I should be eating or, you know, whatever that, whether I was, you know, really, truly, really just being on some sort of externally defined diet that was called okay by our culture for whatever reason. And therefore, I thought that I was eating enough or, you know, even when I was eating intuitively, and then you get into sort of the psych- emotional deprivation, the psychological deprivation conversation with just is is the mental hell, right? And you're going to, I mean, I think that that was me for a really, really long time was just reacting to, you know, hating myself and feeling like I shouldn't eat what I want to eat all the time, all the time, all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's yeah. just, it's both. It yeah. is, absolutely. And that, yeah, that those ideas get transmitted and then become so resonant with your own experience because they do capture something. I mean, I think that's the thing about these old school models of emotional eating, right? Is that they capture something that was unexplained at the time right. and that is still unexplained to many people who haven't heard about health at every size, right? Who don't right. know that there right. is actual science now about this stuff. Well, if you buy into the idea that weight is literally just about how much you eat, right? And it's just like a willpower. It's basically just like a there's a choice element. Like your body size has a choice element or has something to do with like your control over your behaviors in some capacity. The emotional eating narrative makes so much sense. Right. But when you take that away, the emotional eating narrative slowly starts to deteriorate, right? Like once you bring in the concept of like the real understandings of set point theory, health at every size, all of a sudden there just become all of these holes in the emotional eating theory as the reason why people are eating, quote unquote, too much, quote unquote, a lot, quote unquote, you know, why my body is the way it is, whatever. And so, yeah, I'm like very excited to, you know, one day, as I mentioned before, (laughs) one day write my ebook about all of the holes in the emotional eating narrative and how dangerous it is for people in recovery slash people in general. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that like, you know, emotional eating came first rather than diet culture came first. Right, right. So problematic. (laughs) Right. right, And yeah, so like all the, you know, I think that is something for professionals out there to understand too, is that if you're buying into this 
traditional paradigm of emotional eating and sort of using that old school model to explain why people feel that they overeat and then try to diet and lose weight. It's like, that's not... It's an outdated model. Yeah, exactly. It's an outdated model that doesn't work. There are so many outdated models in the field of eating disorder treatment, treatment of quote unquote food issues all along the spectrum, however you identify yourself. So many, so many outdated models that just, I mean, you know, I think we were talking about this before off air, the science and the research around this and and our collective cultural understanding of things like set point theory, which is, I almost hesitate to call it a cultural understanding because mm. it's a small subsection <laughs> of us who really understand it, right? right? But, you know, prior to that information coming out, very well-intentioned people bought into this because they were working under the assumption that health, in quotes, or eating in a non-pathological way equals thinness, right. period, right? And so these narratives all make sense in the context of weight no- normativity. The emotional eating conversation makes a ton of sense in the context of weight normativity. Right. Once you take away weight normativity, once you challenge weight normativity, which is thank God what health at every size has done and what we set point theory theorists who have done. And by the way, they, I realize now there are a ton of people who've been talking about set point theory, even like back to the 60s. That's actually mm. an even older conversation than emotional eating that, as far as literature that I've read. But yeah, but people have obviously been hesitant to adopt it because fat phobia is deeper than that. (laughs) It's deeper than science. It is. People have emotional reasons to cling to it that have nothing to do with rationality. Right. And economic reasons too, right? I mean, that's, you know, the diet industry even sort of fully was born in like the 1800s. A hundred percent. Yeah. Already people had a lot to lose. Oh my gosh. Yeah, completely. We also talked about this briefly. I mean, there are so many different... um, theories about fatness and weight that well-intentioned people who had no idea, who certainly had no understanding of social justice, certainly no understanding of oppression, but also just no understanding of the basic science have propelled. Like, I think that there is a huge, um, there has always been historically up until very recently, there has been a desire by therapists and psychologists in general to explain away fat. Right. To explain like, well, you know, if you're fat, like, let's talk about the reasons you could be fat. You know, perhaps you are holding on to the fat for some subconscious reason. And the most classic reason, of course, that often comes up is sexual abuse. But there are so many different ways that psychologists try to explain away people's fat. And you're hold, perhaps you're holding on to the fat for because of these subconscious reasons, right? Right. And this becomes a very attractive explanation for people who are struggling with their body image or struggling with, you know, with this issue in general. Because I think that women, and we talked about this also offline, it is common when you are struggling with your relationship with food or body to want to have an explanation, right? It's like, even if you're like, okay, I get that diets don't work, but I just want to know, like, I just want to understand. I want to understand why my body is the way it is. And ultimately- I think that it's very, it's unlikely that the reasons you want to understand are for any other reason than you want to get some level of control over it. Mm, 
Right. You know? Yeah, because what could the purpose be otherwise? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I often, you know, I have clients who are, you know, sort of regularly come to me and they're like, oh, I can't believe I'm just so mad at myself. You know, I dieted for so long and I destroyed my set point. I hear this all the time. I dieted for so long and now my set point's probably so much higher because of all the dieting that I did. And I'm going to be like, you know what? Like, that's actually a really simplistic way to think about your size. Mm -hmm. The reality of the situation is that there are so so many people who have restricted for so long who are still thin for whatever reason. There are people who never restricted, who never dieted, who are just larger bodied people. Right. You know, and the reality of the situation is like this is this obsession with trying to blame your body on something. Right. Even the fact that you had previously dieted is really misguided, right? It That's is such a good self, point. a co- sort of like a compulsive desire to. It's a compulsive worry. Right. Right. Like it's a compulsive, it's a compulsive, let me try and figure this out. Let me try and like, I want to, you know, it makes me feel more in control. It makes me feel safer Mm -hmm. to have the certainty of knowing why I am the size I am. If I can't make the size be what I, what I want it to be, I want to know why it is the way. And it's comes from the same, you know, again, I I think the real addiction is certainty. Right. Right. Addiction to trying to gain certainty, control, safety. This is really what we're dealing with here. Yeah. And this is all like the fact that safety, control, and certainty could come from manipulating your body size or knowing and feeling like you're in control of your body size comes from fat phobia and diet culture, right? Like, why does body size matter? Why is that something we should try to control, you know? Right, right, Just like height or, you know, other, like, color of your eyes or whatever. Of course, there's people who are obsessing about those things, too. But it's, you know, such a – it's not a mass cultural epidemic like this is where, you know, there's this – Of course. I like to say, like, there's not an obesity epidemic. That is a super pathologizing term. There's an epidemic of people fearing fatness. Right, 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 right. That's what it is. It's so interesting because I think – Think like you know, it's very human. Like it's like you know, for thousands and thousands of years, people have had who have struggled with the the, the compulsion to control something, right. right? Like I think that you know, if you study Buddhism at all, or if you study Eastern philosophy at all, right? Like this is our fearful lizard brains, like our feel fearful prefrontal cortex, or, or or whatever the case may be, to some extent is always trying to grasp for safety. And and I would make the argument that pretty much every religion that exists, including Buddhism, but also Abrahamic, Judeo religions, mm-hmm. you know, Judeo Christian religions they pretty much all sort of help us deal with this existential anxiety, Mm -hmm, right? This existential, oh my gosh, the world is uncertain. I'm aware of my own death. I'm aware of my own mortality. I want to gain certainty. I want to gain control. I want to create safety for myself. All humans have been dealing, I mean, we've been dealing with this again since we were, you know, a different species, right? right? Since we were a different species on the evolutionary train. Mm -hmm. The concept of creating safety through thinness is completely new, right? And what's interesting is it's not just I notice this in myself. Often it's like the things that we use to create safety with are often culturally determined, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the desire to create safety, the desire to like leap outside yourself to make something certain and try to control your life experience is sort of like a quote unquote natural spiritual malady, if you will. It's like the ultimate human spiritual problem. But what the thing is that we will compulsively try to control will change depending on culture because so much of how we create safety as humans is through acceptance by other people, right? And sort of social stuff. 
So like, that's such a great point. Right. So it's so funny. I've been learning a lot about relationship anxiety. Mm, yes. Right. And like, I think that there are, there are a huge subsection of women, particularly again, upper middle class, white women of a certain age who struggle with food and whether they recover or not, but certainly if they recover, they may find themselves obsessing about something else, whether yep. it be career relationships or whatever. And relationship anxiety is sort of one thing, I think, again, particularly specific demographic of women of a certain age will potentially experience some level of anxiety around their intimate relationships and finding partnership and, you know, is this the right person for me? Or, oh, I'm freaking out because I'm single or, you know, whatever the thing may be. And that is also, it's again, it's a desire to control, desire to create safety that ultimately we, the, the reason we obsess about that is because of the cultural shit that we're fed around relationships, right? So it's like, the desire to control something, the desire to create safety is sort of the quote unquote deeper spiritual malady. And then the way, the thing that we're going to be enticed to control with is almost always brought on by cultural biases, cultural problems, socially determined expectations of what your life should look like, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So true. Especially, I mean, yeah, with relationship anxiety, I can so identify with that. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. Like I spent my early thirties single and dating and freaking out, even though I didn't grow up in a family where that was pressure put on me to get married young or anything like that. It's the culture. It's in the ether. It's in the ether. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like I have pretty cool friends. Nobody's like bugging me, but like still it was just this internal thing that I had internalized from all these. How many romantic comedies have you seen? (laughs) Exactly. Seriously. Like how long have you, how many movies have you seen where female characters were in anything or valued in anything other than a romantic role? I mean, almost none, right? right? And That's they're a also other... probably all thin and white while they're doing right, it. Right, exactly. You know? <laughs> they are. They happen to be the one larger bodied character. It's like right. the friend or the person who, you know, right. it's right. these stereotypes and tropes that don't yeah. actually represent our complex, unique reality, but that we're sold as like, this is the way you fit in. This is the way, you know, and in some some circles. I mean, I feel fortunate in some ways to live in a place where like it's not incumbent on everyone to just be married with kids already, but that is true in some communities, you oh, know. For sure. And for sure. To not be doing that is there is a real sense of being on the outside, being right. ostracized, I'm a not, failure. not fitting right. in, right? Failing. And like that is all culturally constructed, but also it feels very real, you know, it feels very fearful. Yeah, exactly. It's scary, right? Yeah. It is so scary to have expectations for yourself that you didn't even create that were ultimately created for you. But even still, the expectation was instilled in you. It's there. You have this expectation. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, I'm not going to meet the expectation. Despite the fact that, again, this wasn't even your expectation. This expectation was literally like implanted in you as a child. It's like somebody put a chip in your brain called, this is what you should want. Right. Right? (laughs) Yeah. Like the standard American dream chip just goes right in. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, I think that is the root of some of this, you know, the mourning that has to happen when people let go of dieting, right? And the pursuit of the thin ideal, but it happens in so many arenas, letting go of the pursuit of whatever American dream version you had inherited and decided you were going to do and then didn't work out. Yeah. It is funny going back to sort of pitfalls or like things for ethically minded sort of woke professionals who are in this field, especially therapists and people who are working with any kind of anxiety, whether it be eating or relationships or whatever, is just really, really, really be conscious of 
the social biases that you carry, right? Like, I hope that you all out there who are working in this field are spending as much time as you possibly can unpeeling the onion of the expectations that you have of what people's lives should look like, right? Because I cannot tell you how many people I know who are quote unquote relationship coaches who the assumption is that you should be in a relationship. And if you're not, and like there's a problem, if you're not, there's a problem, I'm going to help you get there, right? And it's like a well-intentioned idea that is based on a bias that is actually quite harmful. Totally. Right? And so, you know, I feel like if anyone wants to, I have, you know, I've worked with great people in the arena of relationships, for instance, but it's like the only people I trust are the people who are like, and P.S., if you end up single, that's cool too. Right. Right? (laughs) Yeah, because that shows they've done the work to overcome. Understand how these sort of social biases impact their work. And obviously, you know, I think that I, I can't stress enough. I know we've talked about this offline quite a bit. This is such a huge deal in the order of eating disorder treatment, treatment for disordered eating or issues, again, on the, on the spectrum, however you define that. I often don't use the word eating disorder because- No, same. I yeah, say disordered eating like, usually because it's all the same. Right, exactly. Dieting it's and like, disordered eating. Yeah, like 80% of women hate their bodies. Yeah. Like, that's <laughs> a, like let's just start there. Exactly. And so, yeah, like every time, you know, I think that that this is sort of the major responsibility of therapists and wellness professionals and anyone who is providing any kind of mental health service is to be aware of your biases, understand the cultural constructions in which you are operating and make it a point to continue to educate yourself about that as much as humanly possible, because you could continue to do work forever and still not get to the end. There's always more work to do when it comes to deconstructing bias. I am, that is like my second, that's my, that's my secondary job. Yeah. Like really deconstructing bias, deconstructing bias. If I'm not continuing to do that work, I am not doing anyone any favors. It's really hard work. Yeah. And which is why I think we talked about this also. I uh, recently made the decision that I'm not going to post any photographs of myself as a thin white woman on my business Instagram page. That's um, so amazing. So for, you know, if you go to at Isabel Fox and Duke and follow me on Instagram, like from here on out, it will only be political messages, messages that are relevant to my coaching practice and my mission, but there will not be photographs of me um, on Instagram going right. forward. I think that that is a really, I don't want to, especially with the pitfalls, the major pitfalls of social media are people looking up and seeing this like sort of aspirational image of someone kind of getting this idea of like, oh, you know, we look at social media like, oh, their life is so great. I don't want to like show a picture of me as like a thin white woman, a picture of me and my boyfriend. Like, I just don't want to do that. Like, yeah. that's just not, that is not useful. That is not serving anyone. I, I actually think it's harmful, mm. right? And this is a huge, this is definitely a huge problem. I think that we are seeing with a lot of coaches who are sharing the concept of self-love, but often use themselves as pretty privileged people as examples of, oh, I'm, you know, look at me, I'm so brave. Look at me showing like, here's, look at my stomach. And meanwhile, it's like, you're a thin, you're, you're a thin bodied person. Right. right. This is not. No, I think, yeah, that, that kind of stuff can be useful maybe to an individual who's healing, like to, right. to take self portraits, to share totally. with loved ones or to, you know, explore on their own, how they could develop an acceptance and maybe even a love for those images, but yep. to share it publicly. And especially to share it when you have the, as a prof- coach. the professional privilege, right? right? Exactly. 
exactly and, and have people looking more, up to you yeah it's really becomes much more problematic when you are a, a professional in the space right if you're a coach or a therapist or a nutritionist or something of that kind you know i think when it when you're in your own process of healing and that's what the function of it that's a completely different story and can be incredibly useful and incredibly helpful i mean i know that i've personally experienced that yeah. thrill of actually making myself vulnerable and showing my body showing myself in a bathing suit and putting it out there publicly and noticing that the earth doesn't crumble beneath my feet and like mm. wow like this is amazing i'm liberated the issue is much more when we see professionals, right? So therapists, nutritionists, people who have, to use your word, I like that word, professional privileges, demonstrating themselves in some sort, in like this like aspirational way visually online when so many people are looking to social media and kind of without even, and this is where, again, social, the whole conversation about social media is so interesting. Like, is it helpful? Is it harmful? How can it be helpful? How may it be harmful? You know, the biggest harm with social media, whether we're talking about weight or really anything else, is am I looking to somebody and thinking they have something I don't, mm-hmm. right? Their life is better than mine. Yeah, seeing their outside and comparing it to your insides. Right, right. And this is, I mean, this is not news, right? Like we know that this is problematic with social media. This is like an epidemic, huge issue. And it's something to really be aware of as a professional who has an image on social media. Mm-hmm. And it is something to be aware of as a client, right? Or as like a consumer of social media, like am I being really conscious about how the images that I'm looking at are making me feel, right? And so again, I also, although I will say there are, yeah, of course, amazing benefits if you're a client who wants to do the scary thing to make themselves vulnerable or perhaps you're using social media to really expose yourself to diversity, to body diversity, right. which is my favorite way that people use. I actually I encourage so my clients to go through their social media feed, delete anyone who makes them feel badly about Same. themselves, and insert as many fat positive images that they possibly can. So yeah. plus size bodies that are typically excluded yeah. from their typical visual diets, right? They're yeah. typical visual diets of like, you know, six foot tall, thin white models. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It is so powerful, right? Because that imagery imprints on our brain at such a young age. It's like that idea of what a woman should look like. Mm-hmm. We get fed from all different places in media and increasingly men and people of all genders as well, right? Like there's these expectations of of bodies in all ways that are really problematic. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned sort of like, again, the sort of greater diversity into issues that aren't even of size, right? So, you know, I like want to fill my social media feed with all sorts of body diversity. I want to fill my social media with diversity of all kinds, racial diversity, sexuality and gender diversity. I want to fill my feed with ability diversity, right? Sort of different kinds of bodies, right? Just yeah. different kinds of bodies. And I realized I was talking to a client or several clients actually have brought this up to me recently. And they're like, you know, I'm looking at these images of plus size models on Instagram and, you know, it's kind of helping, but sometimes I compare myself to the plus size models. They mm-hmm. all have perfect bodies. They all are like the hour in, in right. perfect plus size bodies, right? right? In quotes, right? Like they're, they're the hourglass. They have no cellulite, you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And what I kind of ended up saying was, you know, this exercise is not about comparing myself to the plus size model and being like, well, if she exists in that body, I'm allowed to too. The exercise is really about diversifying all the images that I see, like actually just getting into flexing my muscle of trying to see beauty in different stuff, including 
you know, different gendered bodies, including different races, different all sorts of, you know, various different kinds of bodies, just different bodies in gender in general, right. right? If I can start to see beauty and expose myself to different stuff on a regular basis, that's a mu- that's a flexibility mm-hmm. that I can bring with me in my own body as my body changes, as I age. Oh, I forgot right. to mention age oh diversity, which is one of my the most imp- I mean, I, I'm not 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 most important. <laughs> They're all important. They're all right. equally important. <laughs> but I mean, age diversity is one that I always like to bring up because I think mm-hmm. it's excluded from the conversation all the time. Always. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so important because, right, we all will age. We all will. Our bodies will change. Our bodies are changing minute to minute and also throughout our lifespan, right? It's it's this constant source of change. So, you know, we have to be comfortable and flexible with relating to it in different ways. But that comparison thing is so interesting, right? This, like, impulse to compare. Yeah. Where do you think that comes from? Why do people do that? Because I have a lot of clients who who bring that up to me as well. Yeah. So I have some pretty heavy political theories as to why this is the case. Political theories that really even go back into like our economic structure and sort of, you know, in many ways, sort of we as a very meritocratic capitalistic society, right? We have been trained into competition, Mm -hmm. period, right? It's like we have the specific pot of gold, right? I call I, I actually usually refer to it as like a scrap of cheese <laughs> that is like given to us by whatever systemic hierarchy, right? For whatever reason. And people are just fighting over the cheese, right? It's just like, who can get the biggest piece of cheese, right? And if I can get a bigger piece of cheese than you, then I feel better about myself or I feel really I feel safer. It's not even like better. It's like ultimately it all comes down to fear, right? Like I feel safer, right? If we live in a hierarchical society, which I think is indisputable, right? In a hierarchical society, people are going to feel safer the higher rung they can grasp onto. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, again, this is not an easy problem to fix, but I mean, ultimately the question is why do people have this desire to compete? It's because I think that our lizard brains, again, are trying to create safety. And one of the ways that we create safety in a hierarchical society, which certainly in a meritocracy we have, probably I could make the argument in capitalism period we have, you are going to do anything to just get on the highest rung, to just fight to get on the highest rung that you can possibly get on. You'll probably kick people along the way by accident. And you'll be like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I have guilt. But like, I really need to get on this high rung in right. order to survive, you know. And so ultimately, it's an incredibly anxiety provoking way to live trying to cling to the rung, right? It's another way that our lizard brains kick us in the ass, right? Because it's the cost of fighting to get onto the rung is so anxiety provoking and so exhausting that we end up just like ruining our lives trying to create quote unquote safety. And this is what really like Buddhism, like this is where the whole surrender, letting go conversation is about. Like now we're getting back into the same conversation that we we were 10 minutes ago about letting go of control and all these things. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the only peace and sanity that we get is realizing that it is more exhausting and stressful to fight to get on the higher rung of the ladder than it is to just literally get off the ladder and just be yeah. like, I notice my desire to try and cling to the ladder. I notice my desire to like jump on there and compete and try to get on a higher rung than you. I'm noticing that compulsion. I'm noticing my lizard brain wanting to go there. And I'm just, I'm going to recognize that this is bullshit and this is not the path to happiness, right? Like I'm going to recognize that this ladder was designed to hurt me and all others, Mm. right? This is not, I don't, I'm going to do my best to not participate. I do think that it's important to note, and I talk about this with diet mentality all the time, like sometimes these thoughts are going to pop up. 
No need to blame or shame yourself for these thoughts popping up. The question is, can you see them as thoughts? Can you see them as something that you don't actually have to give an enormous amount of value? Mm-hmm. Right? It's just like, okay, there it goes. There's my diet mentality just popping up. Like, oh, that's the flare, right? It's like, the f- I'm uncomfortable. I might feel be feeling fearful. I might be, you know, I'm trying to create safety somehow. Boop. There goes my diet mentality just popping up. And can the first thing that can I do, like even before I get into conversations about challenging it or anything else, first, can I just separate myself from it and just realize like, just a thought. Oh, there it is. Hi, there you are. Diet mentality. I notice myself wanting to go into compare and despair mode. I notice myself wanting to like, you know, compete with another woman or compete with another human. Right. Okay. There you go. Oh, that's just my lizard brain doing its thing. Like, Mm -hmm. thanks for the note, but no thanks. Right. You know? Such a good practice. So important for so many arenas of life, right? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, though, when you were saying that, I I got this, like, weird feeling because I I just had a a business-related situation. I won't go into too much detail, but someone kind of stepped on my turf and, you know, violated my boundaries in a way that made me feel so uncomfortable and icky. And when I I thought very nicely, like pointed it out and said, hey, this felt like it violated my boundaries. Can you please not? I got this rhetoric back that was actually everything you were just saying about scarcity mentality and competition. And, you know, it was like twisted in the service of violating my boundaries, which was horrible. It made me feel so manipulated. Right. And so I think that that is just reminding me that we need to like also be aware that safety and boundaries and having, you know, allowing ourselves to claim space and not let people infringe on us in ways that make us feel uncomfortable is also okay and important. And I think sometimes when we go through this journey, we absorb these thoughts and these concepts in ways that can really be used in service of bad behavior, right? So (laughs) Padma Chodron, who mm -hmm. I love, who I think you're also pretty familiar with, who's a Buddhist nun, and I I always mispronounce her mentor's name, Rinpoche. Trungpa Rinpoche, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He he has a word for this, and he calls it spiritual materialism. Mm. And it's basically when you're abusing spiritual language to serve your ego Mm -hmm. and to serve your own desires about the way you think the world should be. Right. That's a very good point. That's exactly what it felt like. And that happens in the self-help world all the time. Totally. Especially when it comes to business. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, probably in all sorts of ways, but I would say certainly a lot of self-help business owners are guilty of this, right? It's so hard. If anyone is spewing spirituality at you in response to your setting boundaries or in response to your like just being clear about what your emotional needs are, that's a manipulation yes. right there, right? Yes. If they didn't, that's spiritual materialism. If they actually wanted to do the really spiritual thing, they would just be like, okay. Right. That's the, that's the yeah. appropriate response. If someone says I my boundaries are violated. your boundaries. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Period. Yeah. Right. And that goes Period. Even the- if they didn't quote unquote agree, although there's nothing to right. agree with, it's your experience. Right. Like even if they were like, oh, I wouldn't have done in their head, even if they were thinking to themselves, oh, I wouldn't have felt that way. Again, you maybe would have, right. but, you know, but like <laughs> I wouldn't have felt that way or, oh, I didn't realize that it was going to be taken that way or any of that stuff. That's stuff that you like keep that to yourself. Yeah. Right. Experience your only that. job That's when fine. somebody says their boundaries have been violated is say, okay. Right. Period. And I will say that is a really challenging thing to do and does take quite a bit of 
that's the real spiritual challenge. <laughs> not to fight back, right? Yeah. And I think that goes to the like, you know, these sort of larger social justice discussions about intent versus impact. And like, yes, you know, if someone says, like, I experienced something you said or did as oppressive, yep. right? Or this triggered, you know, some historical trauma or this triggered right. something related to this marginalized identity that I hold. It's like the job of the person who is receiving that message to just be like, okay, okay right. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> I didn't, you know, like right. I, that really wasn't my intent and right. I'll back off and I'm sorry, you know, right. like I'm whatever try it takes and understand to, where you're coming from. Yeah. At like my position on this, particularly as the person with privilege is not relevant to this conversation. Right, exactly. Which I see a lot in, you know, discussions about size and stuff, but also for sure discussions about race and gender and, you know, all of it. So mm -hmm. it's, I think going back to what you said about, you know, it's incumbent on people who do this kind of work to keep exploring and keep, you know, unearthing what ways that they hold privilege and that, you know, they might be holding on to some unintentional biases and work through that because, I think the extent to which people are defensive in those kinds of situations is often evidence that there is some unintentional bias at work. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah, 100% unintentional bias. And also going back to this sort of like spiritual desire to not want to be a bad person in mm. quotes or somehow want to rationalize that I didn't hurt this person, you know, right. that whole line of thinking, which is why, you know, it is incredibly deep spiritual work to admit that, yep, I have biases and yep, I don't know everything. And yep, I have the capacity to hurt other people. That is such a huge thing. I was talking about this on a coaching call recently. If you can't stand up and say, yep, I hold biases on the basis of size, I hold biases on the basis of race, I hold biases based on the gender, sexuality, ability, age, right? If you can't stand up and be like, yep, I have these biases, like my job is to work on them to the best of my ability, but and there will probably never be a day when I won't have them because of the unfortunate brainwashing that I not only have received up until this point, but that I continue to receive. Right. I continue to receive fat phobia biases as a health professional working with disordered eaters and emotional eaters, quote unquote, you know, this whole like food issues in quotes, right? right. There's this whole, even us, right? Mm -hmm. Even us as professionals who are theoretically, you know, have so much privilege in the information that we have and the education that we've gotten, we are being brainwashed into Absolutely. fat phobia every single day, every single day that we live, right? And so it's going to be, it is always a, and certainly all of these other kinds of oppression and kinds of prejudice. So yeah. You know, I think it's 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 incredibly important for people to be like, yep, I, I know. hold these biases and part of my job, right? Part of my responsibility, my sort of civic duty, if you will, as a human in the society in which we live is to continue to challenge my biases every day, all day long until I die, basically. Yes. <laughs> you know, Totally. And to look for them, you know, to like set boundaries against them and to look for ways that those biases are popping up. And like, I mean, with diet culture, right, it's I think it's such a huge milestone when people can reach the place of no longer being actively triggered by something and to the place of just being annoyed by it. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so amazing. <laughs> yeah. That happens. Yeah. But like, you know, you still continue to be annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Because it will continue to come at you. And I think that annoyance is actually very protective. Right. It's like triggering. You know, it's it's telling you that you're 
efforts at inclusivity or whatever are being threatened or violated, right? It comes up a lot with families, right? Like, oh, I'm really nervous about going home to see my parents and my family. I mean, I hear this all the time, right? My, you know, really fat phobic family members or intimate partner, whatever the case may be, right? And I'm so nervous to see them and blah, blah, blah. And I often will say, you know, first off, just assume that it might not be easy. Right. Let's not pretend that there's like a way that somehow you can encounter fat phobia in a completely non-painful way because fat phobia is just inherently painful. Right. It's just inherently violent. It's inherently painful to be around. There is going to be no point in your recovery probably where – being conscious and aware of oppression and discrimination around you will not feel violent or uncomfortable. Period. Right. Right. Like, always. like, you know, like yeah, and it still, will. Right? It, it always does. Right. The question is just like, how can you protect yourself in these situations? How can you harm reduce in these situations? How can you, you know, combat and challenge fat phobia in yourself? over and over and over again that you can feel convicted in what you believe to be true. I think one of the biggest issues, obviously, earlier on in our recovery is we're so vulnerable to what if they're right? You right, know, like, of course. I often, you know, will say, I don't feel triggered when somebody has a different political perspective than me, typically, right? And I think, you know, typically if somebody comes at me and is like, oh, well, like, I believe in, you know, X thing. I think that this law should be this way. I'm like, well, I think this law should be that way. So like, we're just in disagreement. Like, I'm right. not, I don't feel like I might be wrong. Yeah. But early on in recovery, like the big issue is that it's like we're kind of we're, we're going from one side of the aisle to the other. Mm. We're making a transition from having one belief and going to the other. So when you're in that transition period, we're still very vulnerable to no, no, no. What if they're right? No, no, no. What if, what if they are right? What if I am just like a horrible, disgusting person and like definitely going to die a young death because X, Y, Z, right? You know? Yeah, for and sure. So it's like a transition out of religion or something. Exactly. You know? People trying to. Yeah. It really is. You're right. You're going to burn in hell. Like. Right, right, right. And I think that that's a really, you know, I think that there's lots of different parallels you could bring totally. in there, you know. So, but yeah, I mean, the I think recovery is kind of the ultimate experience of recovery is getting to the point where when somebody has a different position about than you on issues like fat phobia on this particular area of social justice and oppression, right? You can be like, nope. Right. <laughs> like, there is nothing you could say to make me think otherwise. Right. <laughs> For the most I'm part. I'm firm right? in my beliefs. I feel and- Pretty firm in my position on this. Yes. Yeah. Totally. And yeah, but I don't think that is different than being emotionally unaffected. Mm-hmm. You know, I still get angry when somebody does have a political, you know, oh, a yeah. difference than mine that I think is, a, you know, an issue of ethics and right. I think is an issue of, you know, human rights. You Absolutely. know, of course, that's going to still upset me. And it would even more if I was a person who was really being oppressed in that way. I'm sure. Again, I don't. I mean, I can I can use the example of woman, you know, just right. being a woman. That's often mm-hmm. the only example that I am capable of using. Yeah, same. But, you know, I would say it is certainly I think that the pain is only going to be that much greater if you are in a position where it is actually your rights that are being challenged. Right. And that feeling of discomfort and anger is is good and normal and understandable and like doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. I think that's a big point to clarify for people too. Cause I think sometimes it's like, I've had clients say like, I, f- I still feel triggered by this. And I'm like, well, is it really triggered though? Or is it this new thing? Because I'm observing the way you're talking about it. It's kind of this other thing, which is like justified anger and annoyance exactly. or whatever, like at this, at this exactly. oppressive situation. Right? Exactly. Exactly. I'm always like, get angry. Yeah. Like, 
you, that's that's a natural, normal reaction to oppression. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be angry. Right. Right. The question is like, are you going to go diet as a result of it? Which again, even that, it's like, I don't blame anyone who participates in disordered eating in a fat phobic world. It is not your fault. The question is, do you really want to do that given the new education that you have? Is that really the safest, best way to take care of yourself given and what you know? Given your own lived experience of how dieting didn't work for you or harmed you or disordered eating exactly. caused all these problems exactly. in your life. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, a lot of this is also sort of like harm reduction and stigma mm. resistance skills, right? Like oppression is fundamentally violent. It will never just be comfortable for people to live in a fat phobic world. No. Even thin people. Exactly. It's just fundamentally violent, fundamentally awful situation that we're all dealing with. How are we going to harm reduce? How do we take care of ourselves through this process? How do we do the best that we can to be kind and compassionate to ourselves and others? How do we take care of ourselves in this fucked up situation that is inherently painful, that will never not be painful, right? How do we reduce the harm that we're experiencing to the best of our abilities by things like, you know, maybe making the decision to not participate in certain behaviors anymore, to maybe make the decision to take certain things out of our social media feed, you know, whatever these recovery behaviors are. Ultimately, what we're really striving here for is harm reduction. There is no day coming when fat phobia just won't affect you. Right. Certainly if you're a person of size, but I would make the argument as a thin person as well. Oh, yeah. Everybody is affected by fat phobia. Right. Right. There's it's it's fear of fat no matter what size you're at currently. Right. Right. And with the added stigma and real lived experience of stigma that people in larger bodies face all the time. Right. And for people who are living in larger bodies, it really becomes to some extent a conversation about stigma resistance. Right. In a similar way to so many other people who are struggling with stigma. I mean, there's so many. We Thankfully, we do have examples of thought processes that people can kind of inhabit and embody and and try to change their, try to effectively relinquish their own internalized stigma and create stigma resistance when it comes to externalized stigma coming at them. But yeah, I, I don't think that there's a situation in which a person of size living in a fat phobic society or a thin person living in a a fat phobic society, it just is, you know, oh, there's just no problem. It's just everything's fine. Right. Right. And the sort of options for responding to that kind of stigma are like buy into it and participate, which is what people do when they're dieting and engaging in disordered eating, right? It's like accepting this stigma and responding to it in a way that agrees with the fat phobic premise. Right. Or resisting. Which will often create more harm Although it's not your fault that you thought to do that. Right. Because you didn't right. know that it was going to create more harm when you went into it. Right. Like totally. this is what everyone told you would bring you happiness. Yep. Right. This is just not, it's just not your fault that no. you went down that path. That path happened to you and with your best efforts. Like, you know, your best intentions. Right. Like, you know, and yeah, and you were doing what what you were told and right, what, you know, right. seemed like the best idea at the time. Which, right. And anyone who's listening to this podcast, thank God, you know, at mm-hmm. least has the opportunity to get a slightly different education. Right. You know, even if you, you know, you're a person who's still struggling, even if you're a person who's still dealing with stuff, like even just being able to have this education is such an incredible gift. Just being able to hear somebody who has a different perspective is such an incredible gift. I think that the vast majority of Americans, the vast majority of humans on this planet have never heard the concept of health at every size. They've never heard the concept of weight discrimination, weight stigma to begin with, right? There's just literally, they are just operating under the assumption that they are really supposed to be succeeding at dieting and that they are failing. I know. I know. There's so much work to do in that regard in terms of 
spreading this message. And that's one of the reasons I do this because I feel like, you know, if we can reach more and more people who wouldn't have access to this material otherwise, then maybe that will help, you know, put a crack in the edifice of diet culture. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. We need like legal protections for people. We need, I mean, there is so much that we, we, I mean, our, we have so much institutional discrimination on the basis of size. It's just yeah, right. Terrifying. I mean, hiring practices. Oh, salary medical ranges. System. Medical. I mean, <laughs> seriously, that's a whole. It's a biggie. Big one. Yeah. I mean, which leads into this other type of discrimination that we were talking about a little bit earlier, which is healthism, right? Like, yes. you know, that's a form of oppression that is rarely discussed, except in certain circles, right? Yeah. But- well, in the body positive movement, you hear a lot of it's not about weight, it's about health, right? right. You know, which, which I, you could argue like early early health at every size days people were talking sure. about, although yeah. most of the people that I know who were in on the health at every size movement early on now are really starting to have very serious conversations about whether or not, you know, about sort of the impacts of healthism and what that means, you know, and how that's hurting people, right? So for those of you who are listening who maybe aren't familiar with this term, just in case, healthism is basically the practice of attaching morality and social rightness, social goodness, social acceptability. I think it's very much an acceptability politic around health status, right? And health behaviors, which is huge. They're sort of two different things. Right. So as long as they're, you know, someone's being healthy or as long as they're taking care of themselves, then they can be whatever size they are, right? Right. That's how it usually manifests. Right, 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 right. exactly. As long as they're healthy, they can be fat. Right, But if they're not, what if someone is large in a larger body and also has diabetes, right? Or has mobility issues or, you know. Or is just like not particularly, you know, for whatever reason, not engaging in whatever quote unquote health behavior you think is the right way to be. Right. Or doesn't care particularly about their health, just right. like people right. all across the size spectrum don't have that as a value. Right. You know? Tons of thin people don't care. Yeah. Some large people, you know, tons of large people also don't care. Right? Like, totally. It's like a completely, you know, at, at any size, you can have that be a value or not. Right. Or I think for the vast majority of people, health is a value on a spectrum basis, depending on other things they've got going on in their lives, depending on, you know, what their priorities they're dealing with. I feel like there's like an absolute, they're, they're, I would imagine must be a class component to this. I'm fairly confident that there is, right? You know, if you, you know, let's talk about like the other things that might be like pressing priorities on in your day, right? Right. Like maybe you've got like kids to feed and maybe like going to the gym and getting on the treadmill for minutes is just not the deal, right? Like it's just not Not like, it's just not the, it's not the thing that you need to do today, right? right? Like, (laughs) hierarchy of needs right right? you're like i'm working two jobs and like raising children like getting to the gym is just not my number one priority like i can't even imagine right so you know there's a lot of issues involved here i think healthism is incredibly wrapped up in in classism and i think the intersection between healthism and classism is pretty pretty huge i mean i think that that's one of the big reasons that healthism is really propelled and become what it is but yeah this religion of health right and um, this feeling like, you know, it's okay. You know, I can get behind body positivity as long as people are being healthy, right? Right. Is the highly problematic for all of these reasons. Okay, wait, so are you trying to tell me that if for some reason I just don't want, you know, if for some reason health is not a value to me, then therefore I'm a bad person? Like, right. are you trying to, right, are you going to like police my health behaviors. I mean, it's just another form of body policing. Exactly. (laughs) It's just another form of body policing. Yeah. And just another manifestation of this orthorexic attitude that is 
prevailing right now too, right? right. Where it's like right. health is the be all end all that we should all be striving for. Yeah. And, and it's a control thing also. Mm-hmm. It's the same. I mean, again, I feel like all of these things, it's like, it's like we could talk about the yes. cultural implications. We could talk about the spiritual implications. I mean, there's like, and it goes like back three, to these, right. yeah, it comes back to like a things. few core themes, yeah. all of this, right? It's like we have the social justice components where healthism is attached to classism very much. It's attached to, you know, how we sort of create I'm better than yous and, you know, how we're climbing up. I want to get on a higher rung than you on right. the health conversation. There's that component of healthism. And then there's also, I think, very much, I think most people, you know, I can say for myself personally, I'll speak from my own lived experience, right, with struggling with a little bit of, you know, orthorexia in my history, very, very, very much a anxiety provoking, like an, a behavior that came out of my anxiety, yeah. right? Like, oh my gosh, I, I'm going to die if I eat this thing. Or if I don't eat correctly, I'm going to get, you know, XYZ chronic illness, and then my life will fall apart. But by the way, I've come to a place where I'm like, if I get a chronic illness, like I'll effing deal with it. Like really, <laughs> truly, like see, I'm like, I probably will get a chronic illness chronic at some illness, point. And yeah, I'm exactly. just dealing with it. Exactly. <laughs> I probably will. Yeah. Like that is the reality of the situation. We all um, live so much longer now than, you know, yeah. human like it's normal yeah. for people to get chronic illnesses. as right. we they just right. go through time. Like it, they just happen. They just happen. Right. I mean, we could talk about like potential institutional things that are like contributing to rises right. in chronic illness, but they're kind of irrelevant because we can't control pretty much any of that. Totally. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it's just like at this point, it's just like this is the world, this is the environment that we mm-hmm. live in. I'm probably gonna get I will get sick and die one day. Right. You know? Full <laughs> like, stop. Like, like that will happen. That is, I will get that's sick waiting and for die all one day. Us. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Which is very much, you know, goes back to the Buddhist kind of tradition too, right? Yes. Of like considering your own mortality, facing the certainty of your own mortality yeah. is an important practice in some ways because it does force you to Put think things like, in yeah, <laughs> like I really, I can't avoid this no matter what. So right. why am I spinning my wheels and spending this, you know, limited time that I have here right. on these pursuits, right? these fanciful pursuits really to try to stave off mortality? Right. The cost that I pay to play this game of trying to avoid pain causes me more pain than the marginal benefit that I may even be able to create for myself by doing the extra thing or reading the extra thing or whatever, which, by the way, I, guess, I think it's completely debatable. I think there's an argument to be said for the fact that that stuff doesn't do anything and could possibly hurt you even physically, sure. not even just emotionally, right? I think there's a ton of research to suggest that orthorexia very much creates health risks, Absolutely. actual physical health risks outside of just emotional well-being. Right. Yeah. There's um, there's research now on osteoporosis, but there's a lot of other stuff emerging as well. It's, yeah. It's tons. putting your actual physical health at risk, which was the point of the whole thing in the first place, right? right. Was to, to minimize risk to your physical health. So. Exactly. But I always you say like, you know, even in this fantasy land where I could control outcomes, the energy and the exhaustion and the stress that I would be putting myself through in order to create this, you know, this fantasy benefit that I probably won't even get, this could very well backfire anyway, is such that the the cost literally outweighs the potential marginal benefit, especially when you consider the risk involved. Absolutely. (laughs) It just, it doesn't make sense. It's not smart risk reward analysis, you know? No, totally. I think that's the, that's 
exactly what it takes to overcome that orthorexic tendency is to really look at like the cost, the cost, right? The cost of behavioral economists will call this the cost of optimization. Mm. So it's like the cost of trying to get the best thing versus just being comfortable with like, you know, the reasonable, okay thing. Right. Right. The cost of the, the energy and the stress involved with having to get the best thing or having to get, you know, the safest thing or whatever is often is typically a greater cost than the marginal benefit that you would get if you just when you compare that with just accepting the okay thing. Right, exactly. Right. Which is so true. I mean, in regard to food, right? To try to optimize the health of all your food, whatever that means. Right. But also like, you know, all these things that I'm seeing as really extensions of orthorexia, like beauty products and home care and baby, you know, all of the stuff, right? All yeah. the stuff that's like non-toxic and right. which, you know, there is an argument for environmentalism, certainly. And I I do right. value that. But I think making that a value out of fear and out of the fear of like what personally is going to happen to like you and the people you love as a result of these quote toxins in your environment, that's not worth the effort that you're putting in. Right. You really have to consider the energy and the stress that you put yourself through in order to create this perfect scenario or even this like really good scenario that you this high level of acceptable scenario or whatever the case may be. You need to consider the stress and energy that you put into creating this as part of the overall cost and then make a risk benefit analysis. Right. Typically speaking, by definition, people who are struggling with quote food issues or people who are struggling psychologically around food to the extent that they're like listening to this podcast right now or whatever, by definition, that probably means that the costs that you are incurring by pursuing health in quotes or whatever else it may be with food are high. Right. Right. And so you need to start really considering that when you're making decisions like, you know, when making decisions around food or anything else related to health is like, okay, at what point is this particular, you know, I'm going to strive for X, just literally not worth it, literally just not worth my stress, my mental energy, my mental health goes into a whole other conversation about also redefining health in general as being something that includes you know, the, my, my mental health, my yes. holistic health, my, the fact that sometimes I just want to sit on the couch and just like relax and watch TV and like have a totally. bowl of ice cream or whatever. And that is part of your well-being, right? That's yeah. part of, and well-being really is linked to physical health outcomes as well, right? Like your whole holistic, right. and right. I've uh, talked about this on other episodes of the podcast too, where like this concept of quote unquote holistic health is actually very narrowed. I think it was Alan Levinovitz who said it was like, it isn't actually holistic, right? It's narrowed right. down to just the physical. Right. It's, not ta- it's not taking into account the mental, the spiritual, the right. social, you know, interaction, right? Because In my opinion, anyone who calls themselves like a holistic health coach or like a holistic nutritionist or anything like that who isn't actually acknowledging the benefits of being able to like veg out on the couch and watch TV occasionally is missing the point. Agreed. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, making people feel bad about that at all or that that's not part of life, you know, like I see this with intuitive eating as well. I think people try to optimize intuitive eating in this way that actually causes a lot of harm. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And that's like the hunger and fullness diet, which I talk about all. I quote you on that constantly. It's, so it's another huge part of like my whole like this is going to be certain in, in my book if I write one right <laughs> will be like, <laughs> hunger and fullness diet which dovetails obviously perfectly with the whole like let's talk about the mythology around emotional eating totally but um, <laughs> yeah I mean I think that you know any time I think yeah 
Yes. Because, yeah, for those who don't know, what what is your concept of the hunger and fullness diet? Hunger and fullness. Oh, yeah. Okay. So for those of you who don't know, yeah, this is a hope your mind is about to be blown. Right. But yeah, (laughs) effectively, you know, the hunger and fullness diet is sort of my tongue in cheek way that I talk about intuitive eating when people approach intuitive eating like a diet. Right. So you're not actually just trying to like, you know, give your body what it needs. I actually think the healthiest way to think about intuitive eating is literally just not even having conversations about emotional eating, not even having conversations about anything other than I just want to make sure I get enough. Like intuitive eating is designed to make sure I get enough. It's not about it shouldn't be. Some people talk about it like it should be about excluding things that are too much. Personally, I think any conversation around intuitive eating that exclude that is exclusionary to, oh, you've got to stop at this level of full Mm -hmm. or you've got it is incredibly can be really, 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 really problematic and diet culturally and backfire and turn into all of these other behaviors, including binge eating and all sorts of Mm -hmm. other stuff. But and just crazy and just like oh, I'm trying I almost to use never the word crazy right yeah, now I say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is a whole nother conversation but including just you know obsession and and yeah. you know mental health damage to ourselves and it really does perpetuate diet culture too right I mean I when I teach intuitive eating I don't focus on the fullness factor I don't yep. fo- I don't focus on you know I yep. put like extra emphasis on rejecting the diet mentality and right. on honoring hunger and right. you know satisfaction and pleasure and right. all of the stuff but not you know. The, right. This, this Not the exclusions. Of, right. It shouldn't exactly. be about the exclusions. It should be about making the, for me, the f- purpose and the function of intuitive eating is making sure that I'm getting my needs met. Mm-hmm. It's not about creating rules and boundaries around what I shouldn't have. Right. I should, I'm, oh, I'm too full. I shouldn't eat that. Right. You hear that all the time. Or oh, I was, I wasn't hungry and I wanted oh to eat God. the thing. Right? right. And so this is sort of my, my like kind of tongue, again, tongue in cheek way that I describe this very common pitfall and very common trap that people fall into with intuitive eating is that they bring diet mentality to intuitive eating. They turn intuitive eating into a diet and by sort of creating rules and boundaries around hunger and fullness, and then, of course, feeling like they've fallen off the wagon if they mm-hmm. eat when they weren't hungry or fell off the wagon. I ate way past the point of full, oh, no. you know, and then <laughs> sort of have these, you know, they're kind of, they're they're not operating really any differently from a mental perspective. They're not operating around intuitive eating any differently than they would any other diet. They're totally. really treating it like it's the hunger and fullness yes. diet. As opposed to understanding that from my perspective, and again, <laughs> there are tons of professionals who are selling the hunger and fullness I diet. I know. I was just going to say. It's that's like- a really, really important thing to be careful of is like be weary of any professional who is selling you intuitive eating in quotes, but really it's the hunger and fullness diet. Totally. Yeah. Because I've even seen some like certified intuitive eating counselors who sell the intuitive eating sell diet, that diet or the yeah. hunger and fullness diet. Yep. Yeah. And like it's like there's somehow weight is like involved in the oh, conversation. Yeah. Like anyone who's selling you not... intuitive eating for weight loss is definitely selling you the hunger and fullness diet. Totally. But even if they aren't explicitly talking about weight loss, if they're villainizing emotional eating or talking about like, you know, how you shouldn't eat past the point of full or whatever, that's all hunger and fullness diet stuff. And it's not probably going to serve you long term, although I can understand why it would be tempting. Right. I, I certainly was very, I mean, I bring this up because I personally experienced it. I was really trying to get the hunger and fullness diet right for so long when I was in early stages of recovery, trying to figure this stuff out. I mean, there were years where I was just trying to nail the hunger and fullness diet. Right. And I just want to get the hunger and fullness diet right. Although, of course, in my head, I was calling it intuitive eating the whole time. Sure. 
Now, Which even, I mean, yeah. the, you know, the authors of intuitive eating even acknowledge oh, yes. that, you know, their oh, first, yes. Evelyn like, is Elise, so cool. yeah, totally. And Elise was like, <laughs> just throw out the second edition. Right, like, right, right. You know, it's exactly. like, it's, it wasn't, you know, they know that that they wasn't. They get it. Yeah. Well, and one of the other things that's really interesting, I was had, I did an interview with Evelyn, uh, like a couple months ago and she, and I asked her, I was like, so how has the research around health at every size influenced mm. your work? Because when they wrote the original book, it was before health at yes. every size came out. And exactly. they're like, it changed everything. Yes. We've completely <laughs> changed our tune yeah. post health at every size coming out. So totally. even the authors of intuitive eating, they're, they're very they're cool. amazing. They it's, get it. Yeah, yeah totally. And the new it. workbook, I feel they're like probably, really I think they're mortified it, like, by yeah. people who are abusing the terms intuitive eating and using them for weight loss or using them to create hunger and fullness diet boundary type stuff. I think they're more, I mean, again, I don't want to presume, but I, I, no, I think I, it, I know that they have both said to me individually that they find it very problematic. Yeah. And I spoke to both of them on the podcast too. And they both said like, you know, this is not a weight loss method. Evelyn said, with the research we have to date, it's completely unethical to sell weight loss. Right. Period. Right. It's <laughs> yeah. like, the, what more clarification right. do you need? Like this is, right. yeah, right. it's not about that. Although I would imagine they have people who go through their certificate program just because they want the certificate yeah. and they want to sell the thing that they want to sell. And, you know, I know. And unfortunately, Elise and Evelyn probably can't control that. Exactly. Yeah. Like anything else, right? right? It's as it grows, exactly. it gets a little bit. But you we know. can tell you all right now yes. beware of the hunger and fullness diet in your own life, right? Like just noticing now that now that those of you who are new to this concept are seeing it, you know, ask yourself, like, oh, am I applying diet mentality to intuitive eating accidentally? Right. Am I Am I like judging myself if I eat when I'm not hungry or shaming myself when I eat past the point of full or, you know, any of that stuff that can so often come up and is not serving you and is absolutely detrimental to your recovery. But then also be very, very, very mindful and weary of health professionals who are trying to sell you the hunger and fullness diet, right, or trying to sell you intuitive eating for weight loss or intuitive eating as a method of excluding stuff right. rather than as a method of making sure you get your needs met, which is for, yeah. that's my perspective. The Isabel Fox and Duke perspective on intuitive eating is that it is valuable insofar as it's a method to help you get your needs met. I love Outside that. of that, that's there's no that's it. That's yeah. literally the whole thing. Oh <laughs> that's it. I love that. Yeah, because it is. I mean, food is a is a basic human need, right? We all have these and gotta you know, eat when just you're hungry. Like, right. And yeah. just <laughs> like and sometimes for social reasons and all these yeah. other right. Hungry it's for like whatever. for right. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Like emotion, like, yeah, whatever. And need to get my yeah, need to have my needs met. Yeah. I want to like check in and know what my needs are. Exactly. That's all that is the purpose of it. Yeah. Anything beyond that, anything like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this is not, is just diet mentality. Totally. I've seen too people saying, you know, because now there's this whole orthorexia fascination with like elimination diet and like being sensitive, right? Food sensitivities and what kind of things are you sensitive to that you might want to eliminate. And I've seen intuitive eating be used in service of that, where it's like, use your intuition to figure out what foods are causing sensitivities, which is hugely problematic because it's yeah. impossible to be that scientific about yourself. Your digestive system takes like 48 hours to yeah. process things. So you don't even know what you ate that might be causing the gas or whatever. But what about just stress or what about I just know life, right? Like I it's, know. it's oh, super. So I, I will say there is like a, I so feel for anyone who is struggling with like digest, like just physical yeah. digestive issues or and especially, I mean, if there, I, I feel bad for people who are struggling with digestive issues or chronic stuff, which is again, a totally. growing number of us, yeah. right? Like, 
But it is such a particularly challenging thing to navigate kind of physical symptoms that you may be chronic physical symptoms of any kind that you may be dealing with in diet culture, because diet culture's first response, A, is that it's your food. Right. But B, even if it is like potentially legitimate related to what you're eating, like then it's like a whole other conversation about like, how do I not turn this into a healthist thing? How do I not become obsessed with and shame myself if I eat something that makes me have a stomach ache? You know, I often say to people, it's like, okay, so you got a stomach ache. Right. That's it. Yeah. Right? Like, you don't like, owe anybody not having a stomach ache, right? Yeah. You don't even, it's, you know, that's it's your choice. Worst things have happened. It's really okay. I can understand why you would, you know, feel physically uncomfortable and be like, oh, if I know this thing causes me a stomach ache, maybe I'll be conscious of that when I make that decision. But ultimately, if you do make that decision and you do get a stomach ache, like, it's your body and like that's yeah, your choice. Like really totally. it's okay. You exactly. know? Like, like. And I think to the extent that you're still coming out of diet mentality and recovering from that, it's yeah. going to feel like such a restriction and deprivation if you have something put on you that's like medical restriction, you know? Mm-hmm. I've definitely seen a lot of people who if they are recovering from something and then they get told to cut out certain things or whatever based on some sort of diagnosis they get that is legit that causes a whole lot of turmoil, right? That causes yeah, it's really a, it, challenging. They, it's, it's hard not to relate to that as a diet. It's one of those which, things where this is like one of those situations where I'm like, please, please have really health at every size, really size inclusive, really non-healthist professionals helping you through this. Totally. Uh, and like seriously, which is because so there's hard so find. many different, I mean, I feel like that is a huge portion of the population that I work with are people who are grappling with medical restrictions or dealing with chronic illnesses of some kind. And there are great, like, like Julie Duffy Dillon. Yeah. Perfect example of somebody who works with this population almost exclusively at this point, I think. I I could be wrong on that, but I know she has a huge specialty in this. Yeah. But this is a huge, I feel like so many of my private clients are people who are grappling with this conversation. Like I'm dealing with some sort of, you know, chronic illness of some kind that may or may not, but very may well be related to food. And I'm also in, you know, recovering from diet mentality. How do I deal with this? You know, and I, I could, I I could probably write a second book about that too. I mean, like it is so important. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a whole, that is like one of the number one, we could, we should do an episode. We should do a whole episode about this. Because that's like a whole conversation. fifth episode. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's like a whole conversation. I could literally talk about that for 60 minutes and I almost don't even want to like dive in, crunch it into such, if we don't have that much time. We're also running out of time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I was like, this one is a biggie. It's a huge one. So let's like give ourselves like a 45 minute chunk. Later. Maybe we'll put that as a to be continued. <laughs> to be continued to medical and restrictions in the context of, in- of so intuitive eating. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. Always comes up. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, thank you so much, Isabel. It's so good to talk with you again. Always. Always. Every time. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I love chatting with you. I swear. I mean, there's like, it's like there's like five people on the planet whose stuff I feel I can safely recommend, and you're one of them. So, oh, thank you so much. I'm right back at you. Thank so, you. Exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> so, speaking of your stuff, tell us about your stuff and where people can find it. Yeah. So, for those of you who are totally new to my work, I just want to say nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Some, I know some of you listening to this hopefully will have heard other episodes. And if you haven't heard other episodes that I've been a guest, I, I encourage. Back, you to do so. There's more where this came from. <laughs> 
But yeah, for those of you who want to just learn more, a little bit more about my perspective, my typically people start with my, my, I have a free video training series called Stop Fighting Food, which is like a three videos intro series that I'm sure you'll put a link to. Yes, in the I will notes. have a link in the show notes. That's sort of like an introduction to my work. And typically I like to talk to people via email and I send awesome emails with really helpful, valuable content on a regular, I like to think They're it's so helpful. Good. And I valuable. love them. I love yeah. Them. <laughs> and you know, if you want like a once a week truth bomb about uh, to uh, <laughs> overcome your diet mentality, definitely sign up for the video training series and or um, my blog. You can check out my blog as well as bellfoxandduke.com. I am actively trying to destigmatize emotional eating. I am actively trying to debunk the hunger and fullness diet over there and talking about all sorts of other stuff as well. If you're completely, they're both, you know, the beginning of the early posts that are on my website on the blog and the video training series are kind of intro to my work. And then as you go through the emails, they get more juicy and more advanced. And of course, the most advanced stuff is going to be my masterclass, which I am, if you really want to dive deep in with me and get really hot on these topics and like really dig into the weaves and work with me, basically, my masterclass is going to become, I'm going to be, I think I'm opening the cart for my masterclass on September 7th. I believe that's, yeah, September 7th or 8th, but that's coming You'll up get soon. An email. If Just sign up for emails yes. and you'll see it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And I'll put all that in the show notes too yeah. so people can find it. Cool. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Isabel. A Thank pleasure you. as always. Ditto. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Isabel Fox and Duke for being our guest today. And thanks to you all for listening. You can grab Isabel's free video training series, Stop Fighting Food, at christyharrison.com slash IFD. That's for Isabel Fox and Duke. christyharrison.com slash IFD is my affiliate link to support the podcast and learn more about Isabel's work. To learn more about my work and stay up to date on everything going on with me, you can join my email list at christyharrison.com slash email. That's christyharrison.com slash email. When you join, I send you a five-day free mini-series on making peace with food and your body. So get those helpful tips and lots more from me at christyharrison.com slash email. And if you want daily inspiration for your body liberation and health at every size journey, come follow me on Instagram, which is a medium I really love. Who knew? I'm at Christy Harrison on Instagram, and the first I is a one. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Bullies want your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went